Hello, uh, welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is Richard Steinberg. I'm Chair in Operations Research here at the LSE. Uh, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our speaker tonight. Uh, Professor von Winterfeld's research interests are in the foundation practice of decision and risk analysis as applied to technology development, environmental risks, natural hazard, and terrorism. He is co-author or co-editor of four books or edited volumes and over 100 articles, chapters, and reports on these topics. As a consultant, he has applied decision and risk analysis to many management problems of government and private industry. He has served in several committees and panels of the U.S. National Science Foundation and the U.S. National Academies of Sciences, including a recent appointment to the NAS Board on Mathematical Sciences and their applications. Uh, Professor von Winterfeld is a fellow of the Institute for Operations Research and Management Science, that's INFORMS, and of the Society uh, for Risk Analysis. In 2000, he received the Ramsey Medal for Distinguished Contribution for Decision Analysis from the Decision Analysis Society of INFORMS. Uh, finally, he's director of the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, known as YASA, in Luxembourg, Austria. And I should also mention he is Centennial Professor in the Department of Management here at the London School of Economics. And now, Detlef von Winterfeld on Research for a World in Transition, Yasa's Strategy for the Next Decade. Thank you very much, uh, Richard. Welcome. Uh, it's been a while. I, this is like all the old faces from Yasa coming back. This is like a society. Uh, uh, my wife and I are, my wife is sitting over there. She came with me to London. We're very happy to come back to London. We do this quite frequently because as part of my job here at the uh, London School of Economics, I teach a class or co-teach a class with some of my colleagues in decision analysis. And it's also a pleasure to get away from my day job at YASA, which sometimes, as you can see, can be quite exciting and also somewhat uh, challenging and stressful. So this is my reprieve, come joining students again and doing some lecturing. What I'd like to do in the next 40 minutes or so is um, to talk about some of the global challenges um, that YASA encountered when it was founded in the early 70s. I'll do this very briefly to set the stage and then tell you a little bit about some of the exciting and unique research that's going on at YASA and discuss uh, the global challenges of the next decade, which leads me to YASA's new strategy, which essentially was my job when I started to design a new strategy for the next decade for YASA. Uh, I don't know if you can remember back to the 70s. I see some faces that, of people who probably weren't born in 72, but most of us remember 72. I, for one, I was uh, a PhD student at the University of Michigan, not knowing that three years later I would end up at YASA for a three-year stint after I received my PhD. But uh, the 70s were a very different time. For one thing, they looked kind of gray there in the pictures. I couldn't find anything colorful. That um, probably had to do with the technology of the time. But some of the symbols are, of course, the um, uh, the Cold War, the weapons race. Uh, 1973 was the uh, uh, the oil embargo and uh, lines in in uh, gas stations, and of course the wall. We just had two days ago was it two days ago or three days ago 
the celebration of 20 years of the fall of the Berlin, which is certainly a very important event for me, coming originally from Germany. Um, but there were also signs of hope at that time. On the uh, upper left picture, you see uh, Premier Kosygin, Alexei Kosygin, and Lyndon Johnson. And at the time, this was in 1967, they talked about ideas that eventually would be called détente. And this was in Glassboro, New Jersey, between New York and Washington, D.C. Nothing much came out of that, but a small idea took hold, and that idea was to create a small scientific institute where Eastern and Western scientists could come without the baggage of ideology and politics and exchange ideas and do studies together. The upper right picture is the signing of the Yasa Charter, and the person right in the middle is Lord Zolli Zuckerman. This occurred, I believe, in the Royal Society. The person to the right of him, the very debonair-looking person, is actually German Grigiani, who, as a little side note, also was the uh, son-in-law of Kosygin. Uh, so there was some kind of relationship in addition to the great politics of the day. The upper left, on the, on the left of the table sits Philip Handler, who was the National Academy president at the time of the United States. The lower picture is actually the signing of the uh, papers that uh, gave Yasa its new home. And on the left, you see how Rafa, who was a decision analyst, he's still alive. I talked with him quite a bit about Yasa because he also was the first director of Yasa, also one of my intellectual heroes, and German Grigiani and an Austrian contingent. That signing led to Yasa being located in a very beautiful place about 14 miles south of Vienna uh, in a castle that Maria Theresa built. And before you think what luxury, what incredible waste of money, we're only paying less than one dollar a year for renting or for living in this beautiful castle. But it has been the home of Yasa since 1972. In October we had our 37th anniversary. A few statistics. Uh, we have about 150 researchers, 100 full-time equivalents, 100 other staff members. Our budget right now is about 16 plus million euros, which is split quite evenly between internal funding, which comes from membership dues of our 17 members, and external funding. A lot of it comes from the European Union, but also from other uh, national, member, national member organization institutions. We have 17 national members, mostly National Academy of Sciences or equivalent. Uh, one of the statistics that always surprised me, we own 17 members, which is a small number in terms of all of the, all of the nations in the world, comprise 50% of the world population, and that might also take you back for a moment. Well, we have China, we have India, <laughs> that's 40% right there. <laughs> we have uh, the United States, Germany, and many others, Pakistan, Korea, Japan. Um, the characteristics of YASA that make it unique is, first of all, it's international. It's a truly international institution. Secondly, it's independent. It was designed from the early days on to be an institution that was not to be run by governments or to be influenced by governments. That, that's why most of the funding has been channeled through the national academies or equivalent organizations. 
And it is a research institution that's using primarily mathematical modeling and analysis tools, operations research. We call it systems analysis, but it's really a large set of tools in order to tackle important global problems and make a difference to policymaking around the world. Here's some early products of YASA. Uh, even in 1978, we had studies of uh, carbon dioxide emissions and climate change. Uh, I don't know if we were the, the first, but we certainly were among the first who looked at this as a serious uh, problem. 1981, Energy in the Finite World was our first energy study. Another climate and energy systems. Sustainable development of the biosphere. I think, Mark Thompson, weren't you involved in that book? You were a co-author, Mark sitting right here. And uh, uh, Martin Perry, I don't know if he's here, uh, was uh, instrumental in linking climate change and agriculture. So we always had this global perspective and we had an eye on uh, problems related to climate change and energy. One of the great success stories, and with that I will end the, almost end the historical part, was YASA's involvement in the sulfur dioxide, di dioxide debate in the um, 80s, I think. Um, if you recall, there was a big issue about acid rain. It was not only in Europe, but it was also in North America, between Canada and North America. And in particular in Europe, uh, the question was how should we distribute the burden on cleaning acid, uh, on reducing acid rain by reducing SOx emissions from power plants primarily and from cars. And there was a big negotiation by the European countries. And YASA's model, the so-called RAINS model, was used as a platform for negotiations. And whether it's all in terms of these effects that resulted, but it certainly contributed to uh, creating a, an agreement, a binding agreement, that resulted in tremendous reductions of uh, SO2 pollution. That's the lower curve down here. So we're now about 2020 estimated to be here. If nothing had been done, we would be at that very upper end of that curve. So I think that in a way, when I was first asked to rejoin YASA as director, was for me kind of a prototype of what I wanted to see more of. Direct interaction, with policymakers, sometimes in negotiations, on very real problems that involve multiple nations and the global sphere. We also had a share of visitors and participants at YASA, people who stayed at YASA for some time, sometimes extended, sometimes short, of Nobel Prize winners. On the upper left is Chelan Koopmans, who you might know, uh, Leonid Kantorovich, both um, operations researchers, mathematicians. Uh, Paul Kuzin is a chemist who worked with us on climate change. And the lower right is Tom Schelling, who became a good friend by now, who visits Yasa with his wife every year, sometimes for several months, and helps us with our young students as well as with his ideas. He won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2005. And then, of course, we have several part participants, about 17 at Yasa, who participated in the fourth assessment report of the IPCC. So we have a strong engagement with the IPCC and the climate change world. That's enough of history, and now let's move to 2010. I'm brand new at YASA, so to speak. I was there in the 70s, but uh, I was called back in last year to be the new director, in, uh, on, starting on the 1st of January of this year. Seems like a long time, seems like longer than 8, 9, 10, 11, almost 11 months. But it was quite a challenge because um, 
while Yasa had done a tremendous amount of research and work, I felt that it could use a new push to a new strategy focusing on the truly global, important global problems and become even more policy relevant than it was with its modeling and analyses. So we engaged in a long process, about a year, of um, strategic planning and we looked initially at the sort of challenges that we face in the global world. Here's just some numbers. 1.02 billion people are undernourished worldwide, noted by the federal FAO. 1.1 billion people have inadequate access to water. 1.6 billion people are without access to electricity. 25,000 children die each day due to poverty, according to UNICEF. 80% of humanity lives on less than $10 a day. And the average temperature predicted to increase by 1.1 to 6.4 if there is business as usual over the next uh, 90 years. Those are truly incredible challenges. We call them food challenges, water challenges, energy challenges, poverty challenges, equity challenges, and climate change challenges. Now, there are many others. There's crime. There's health, there's political instability, there's terrorism. And we made the deliberate choice to focus on these six topics for the future of YASA, which is still a very large agenda. We did one other thing. We combined topics in a way that are naturally connected. So, for example, you can't think about food without thinking about water. Food and water go hand in hand, 70% of all drinkable water goes for agricultural production. You can't think about energy without thinking about climate change. A third of uh, greenhouse gases comes from energy production facilities. And you can't think about poverty uh, without thinking about the other th it's issues of equity that are related to it. So we created a vision that said we want to focus on three coupled themes, food and water, energy and climate change, poverty, and equity and conduct systems analysis and policy relevant research uh, to find solutions to these problems. And I would like to make a comment at this point. This didn't come out of a vacuum. I want to acknowledge two people uh, that certainly shaped my mind but also infused a lot of ideas into the strategic planning process. First person is John Holdren who at the time we did this was uh, ex- uh, president of the AAAS, the American Academy uh, Association of, of Advanced Sciences. Uh, he's currently the uh, science policy advisor of President Obama. The other one was John Bettigan, who came to YASA in December to give a talk about global problems, global challenges, and what science can contribute. And uh, he, of course, is the science advisor of the UK government, and Gordon Brown. They had identified many of these problems and the tools and techniques that are required. They also used a lot of the language, I believe, that we are familiar with and fond of at YAS, a systems approach, integrated assessment, and uh, analysis. I'll briefly talk about some of these topics, not so much about the future because we're just shaping the future, but in terms of what YASA has already done with respect to these topics. So in food and water, for example, there are some projection here by our land use groups on the kind of areas in the world that are vulnerable to food insecurity, countries in the world that are vulnerable to food insecurity. 
And this is dependent on the population growth, the water availability, the agricultural availability, and other variables and predicted over the next decades. And the red areas, of course, are the ones that are most vulnerable. And then the, uh, the yellow and the uh, brownish ones are vulnerable as well. As I go through some of these slides, you see Sub-Saharan Africa keep popping up over and over again. Vulnerable to food, vulnerable to water, no energy, etc. It, it is certainly a hub of global problems. The food problem doesn't get any smaller. In fact, in some areas it gets bigger. Here's a graph by the FAO that shows that since the 60s, uh, when we had 800 million people, undernourished people, to today, or 2007, we still have about 900,000, 900 million uh, undernourished people. Uh, it has stayed pretty flat. Now, there was population growth, so in percentage terms, it probably has gone down. But what you see primarily here that's of concern is that down here, Sub-Saharan Africa actually has increased in terms of the number of people who are undernourished, while um, other Asia has gone down and the other uh, areas have uh, actually stayed pretty much the same. Here is a very, very exciting and interesting piece of Yasa research. And uh, you, I didn't know this when I came in January, so I was quite surprised. Um, there is, I, I hear, a, um, uh, a discussion based on, was it a movie or a book, The End of the Line, about uh, we're running out of fish, uh, running out of biodiversity. Well, here's a result of the size of certain fish in 1930, in 1970, in 2000, and it gets smaller on average. And the variety, the variance also is going down in size. So you might think, well, this is a, tends to be due to the fishing activities. Fishermen want to catch large fish, that's their job. And they probably let the small fish get through the net or disappear. They don't care about them. Well, it's worse. There's a genetic mechanism going on. So it may be irreversible that the fish don't only get smaller, but they're genetically disposed to only breed smaller fish. And so uh, this is something that is very serious and maybe in line with this rather doomsday uh, notion of the end of the line. Water shortages, again, you see uh, areas around the equator and uh, sub-Saharan Africa uh, facing physical water scarcity, the brown areas facing economic water scarcity. Uh, now, we're all talking these days about things like desalination, various technologies that we actually have looked at at YASA. It's economically still very, very far from being realistic. And some, some uh, states uh, in, in uh, Abu Dhabi, for example, and in uh, Saudi Arabia, desalination is, has become uh, economic, and they do it in a, on a very large scale. I recently had a conversation with our counterparts in uh, Malaysia and Indonesia, and Malaysia delivers water to Indonesia, and Indonesia has very aggressively worked on desalination technologies in order to become independent from Malaysian water imports. But it's still not economically feasible, valuable for them to, but they keep this as a notion in case they have to do um, their own water and be independent of Malaysia. 
Now, water, food, and climate change are closely interlinked. On the left, you see a picture of what might happen more often in Vietnam, namely that uh, the rains and the typhoons increase in frequency and severity. On the right, you see droughts, droughts in, in Africa. This, is, this one is in Kenya. Uh, that might also increase. The picture about climate change is a complex one, and climate change modelers are grappling with this. It's certainly not a uniform increase in temperature, two, three, four degrees, but it's a very different differential increase and will affect many countries differently. Unfortunately, it will affect the countries in developing countries, the, the countries that are developing the most. Very briefly on poverty and equity, one aspect that keeps astonishing me is the incredibly inequitable distribution of income. There are about, about a thousand billionaires in the world, and every once in a while I go to Google and check it again because, uh, you know, with the economic crisis, maybe we'll lose a few. But it's a pretty stable number. There are 10 million millionaires in the world, and one billion who live less on less than one dollar a day. And you know about all the efforts that the developed countries have made to remove people out of poverty, out of hunger, and it's a very, very difficult a task, and not, efforts have not been terribly successful so far. One key to development and growth and increase in income, at least in GDP, is education. One of our researchers, Wolfgang Lutz, is a quite well-known demographer who has found that he can do more sophisticated analyses to predict uh, how uh, for uh, GDP growth depends on the number of variables, uh, for example, resources, capital, uh, but also he finds that education plays a very large role. Uh, so he split up uh, countries that are developing now into three. In one scenario, the, the no education is predominant, about 50%. Primary education is another 40%, and secondary only 10%. And you can imagine there are countries associated with approximately those numbers. If you keep it at that level, you can expect approximately a 2% annual GDP growth. Uh, it gets better if you meet the Millennium Development Goals. This is the middle graph. So if you move up to 50% of the population uh, having at least primary education, the, the uh, growth goes up to 6%. And finally, if you also add to that secondary education, you can expect even much higher growth. Now, I'm a bit of a skeptic here, because when I first saw this, I said, what's cause and what's effect and what's the interrelationship? So certainly, education only plays one part. Capital, resources, and technology play another part. But uh, it is an interesting fact that education tends to lift countries out of poverty. And finally, let me talk about climate change and energy. This is really the staple of YASA since the early days. And uh, let me just give you a couple of uh, pictures here to start off with. These are the night lights in 2000. So you can see where the, where the lights are predictably in, in Europe and in the United States, scattered everywhere else, India, northern India, China. According to some predictions, this is what the night's lights will look like in 2070, 60 years from now. 
Um, two observations about this. This will require a significant increase in production of electricity and energy. Uh, also, you notice that Africa is still pretty dark. India is getting lighter. China is getting lighter. Uh, great challenges both in equity and in the chip production of energy. <clears throat> Regarding energy, we have done a lot of work how this increase in energy demand might be provided in a sustainable way, in a way that avoids climate change, damages due to climate change. It would, to the best of the knowledge of, my, of our energy researchers, it requires all sources. That uh, you can't step by this problem that you need renewables, you need bioenergy and biofuels, you need nuclear, and you need to the extent fossil, necessary fossil fuels uh, but they have to be reduced radically to reduce uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, in line with our energy projections, uh, our uh, scientists have worked very closely with the IPCC uh, to develop scenarios for greenhouse gas emissions. And here on this graph you see a number of scenarios. These are the lines and the shaded areas are the uncertainty bands around them of global carbon dioxide emissions over the next 100 years. We do a lot of work over the 100-year period. This is global. Uh, the top line, uh, the brown line on the top, uh, would suggest that if things are done as usual, we'll see an enormous growth in, uh, in greenhouse gas emissions, which will be unsustainable and probably lead to the high end of the average temperature increases that are being kicked around to six degrees and so on and so forth. Where we want to be is at the green line at the bottom uh, with actually no or little increase in greenhouse gas emissions and then it, down the road actually a decrease uh, through reforestation and other means and carbon capture and sequ sequestration. So once you realize that, you realize you are up against a very, very difficult task that pretty much requires a fundamental change in our uh, system of producing and consuming energy. One of the statistics in, along these lines that I always find absolutely amazing, and my American friends sometimes challenge me on these numbers, but the United States per capita spends two times the energy than Japan, for example. Two highly developed countries, you know, they have very different culturally, and there are lots of reasons why that occurs, but Japan is just very energy efficient and does a lot of conservation. And if you want to look for a country that, well, let's face it, pretty much wastes energy, that's uh, the United States. I can say this because it's my country. And a lot, of has, a lot of things have to be done in order to improve that. We are now working, my teams are working on the emission data for this, the, the fifth assessment report. Here are some graphs. Uh, this is now done all interactively uh, on websites. Uh, these things are accessible. You can navigate to them uh, through the YASA website. These are just three scenarios. The upper scenario is, again, the, no, the business as usual scenario and then attempts to develop uh, energy, greener, greener energy sources at the lower end. Um, this site was opened in September, so it's fairly new. Visit it, please. It's a very interesting and evolving site. Within September uh, and early October, it had 70,000 hits, so there's a lot of interest in that particular activity. 
this was the long term. Let me talk just briefly about another very exciting activity that has put, to me, put is, signifies again the ability of YASA to actually engage in the policy process. This is the successor of RAINS. RAINS was very successful in asset RAINS, so the question was why not in greenhouse gas? Um, so one of our colleagues, uh, Marcus Ammann and his team, have developed greenhouse gas reduction models, which, is, which are called GAINS. I think greenhouse gas and air pollution interactions and synergies is the name. And the idea here was, what if we combine regular air pollution controls, like um, the controls you put on coal-fired power plants, electrostatic precipitators, or baghouses, with controls that uh, are usually used for greenhouse gas reductions, like um, uh, conservation or energy efficiencies. And he finds that there are great medical benefits, which I'll show you in the graph in a minute. He has been very successful in uh, current greenhouse gas emission trending. The results there was that even compared to the Kyoto Agreement, everybody is above the line except for Russia. The UK is actually doing quite well. Uh, but Russia is uh, undershooting, probably because of the economic situation. The United States is just completely overshooting. Uh, but at the same time, the actual costs of current and future greenhouse gas reductions are lower than expected. So in a way, even you know, we should encourage uh, going forward to Copenhagen, the countries to do more and probably not encounter a bigger burden. These analyses, which are all geared towards helping negotiators in Copenhagen, uh, are also useful in terms of comparison activities in various countries using different metrics. Often you hear things like percent carbon dioxide reductions against 1990. That's sort of a magic figure, and people negotiate that. Never made a lot of sense to me why, why that is the right number to negotiate. In a way, what you ought to negotiate is the burden a country takes on in order to achieve certain targets, because that's the effort the country has to make. For example, the same percentage reduction for Japan might be a much bigger burden than the same percentage reduction for the United States, because the United States can get it almost for free. Not the whole reduction against 1990, but with energy efficiency and conservation, that can go a long way. Doing both pollution control and uh, greenhouse gas mitigation together has an interesting co-benefit. On the left, you see, this is the same study team, the costs for reducing health impacts from air pollution by 50%. So assume that you, your goal is to take all the air pollution that you have, you estimate the health effects, you want to cut this by 50%. That's what it would cost you. And what you would do, this is in, for China, uh, I think this is probably in billions of euros, yep, for 2030. Uh, you have to work on the households, PM is uh, particulate matter controls, large plants, you have to control NOx and SOx, SO2, that's what it costs you. If you combine uh, the greenhouse gas mitigation measures, which are very different and also cost you something, with the regular pollution measures, you actually have a less total cost. And I think this is one of the ways we can motivate developing countries to entice the notion of greenhouse gas reduction and pollution control and getting essentially a win-win situation. The reason why this occurs, of course, is the greenhouse gas mitigation measures are very different 
and they actually reduce the total amount of pollution that comes out of the smokestacks. So it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you may recognize Lord Nicholas Stern. Uh, after he wrote his report, he thanked YASA for your invaluable help during the preparation of my review of the economics of climate change. I value YASA's work highly and know it is taken seriously at the highest levels of government and in nations around the world. Now, this report was not uncontroversial, and uh, some of my YASA colleagues have uh, had something to say about it. I think it had something to do with the discount rate. If you want to know discount rate debates, come to me afterwards, because I have opinions about that. I'm going to give you only one, one tidbit, and it's a discount rate is a value judgment. Uh, there's no correct discount rate. If that in, intri intrigues you, uh, come to me afterwards. But I just want to leave it at that. A few more slides on other activities at YASA surrounding these three core themes. Clearly, you have to understand the global drivers of change if you want to under understand what's going on in the systems that you model in each of the themes. Um, one of the, uh, I would say, possibly at the time controversial, but I think now quite accepted result from our population group was that we probably will see a tapering off of population growth around 2060 and 2070. And of course, if you get the, try to get the intuition for that, it's because the large growing countries, India and China, appear to be growing also in wealth. And wealth goes together with decreased fertility, and decreased fertility goes together with decrease in population growth. The middle line here, the red line, is the median, the 50-50 line. The band around it is essentially uncertainty. And of course, the further out you look, the more uncertainty you have. Uh, the top line is possible with a small percent chance, about 12 billion in 2100. The lower line is possible too, also very, very unlikely. But in general, there's this trend of a flattening, flattening and out curve. Technological innovations are very important. I'm not going to go into detail to that. This is a picture of uh, uh, the Internet hubs as they are around the world. And again, I might highlight that uh, these are about a, a half a million Internet hubs primarily focused in North, North America, Europe, and Japan, and scattered all over. And again, um, uh, Africa looks rather dark. We expect that picture to change in a similar way as the electricity picture, the light picture changes. Um, and technological innovation is a large driver in terms of uh, global change. One of my personal interests is uh, low probability, high consequence events. The buzzword right now is extreme events. Sometimes they were called catastrophic events. I like to think of the, ex the truly extreme events as the game changers. The events that truly change uh, the way nations and the, uh, the, glo uh, the, the, the global community does business. 9-11 was a game changer. September 11 attack by terrorists on the World Trade Center was a game changer. Partly because of the event in by itself, the people who died, 3,000, and the de destruction of the buildings. The total economic cost was about 200 billion to the United States. It was absorbed more or less like a, I hate to say this, but like a small event. That wasn't the game changer. The game changer was a whole nation 
changed its security posture to the outside world, started engaging in two wars. Other countries got involved, like the UK, with terrorist events. So I think, in that sense, 9-11 was a game changer. The two natural catastrophes, the um, tsunami of 2000, December 2004 and the Chinese earthquake, killed many people and I think raised important questions about dealing with high-consequence, low-probability disasters in the developing world. And the lower right, we're still living through that. Uh, this lower right, actually, the economic crisis, motivated me to engage in YASA, a group of people who can do modeling that combines the systems modeling of the dynamic ripple effects of things that occurred, for example, in the economic crisis, from the bubble bursting in the housing market in the US to a bank going bankrupt in the UK. This is quite modelable and combining that with risk uh, assessment models. And that hadn't been done before. There's a little bit of that going on. And I think we can make a big breakthrough in that area in terms of mathematical modeling, if not in terms of prediction, then at least in terms of uh, um, having models that can explain phenomena like these. A couple of words on systems analysis. Systems analysis is the tool at YASA, which has a number of features that I comment on. When I came to YASA, I have to say that systems analysis sounded like a little old-fashioned, maybe, but I have to say that there are two forces that are working on us now. I think many policymakers are now asking for broader integrated systems type of use and analyses. Don't just look at this small sector of the energy system and optimize it. Look at the whole picture, and I think that's an important force. The other one is that as systems analysis matures, there are new and exciting innovative ideas that we want to inject in there. So I, I actually believe that we can reinvigorate systems analysis and be responsive to the needs of the policy world. At one level, systems analysis means that the studies are problem-driven and solution-oriented. I'm a great believer in doing analyses that, that are um, responsive to policy needs out there. So you start with a problem, you look for the options, and to, you try to analyze it in a way that helps policymakers make decisions. Here's a, I'm going to use this just as a background example. Here's a study that we've done on energy and food, energy and food land conflicts. If you have at all been in tune with the biofuels debate, uh, there's the general sense by many, not by all, that by the production of biofuels, especially first-generation biofuels through sugarcane, maize, and other agricultural products, displaces agricultural products for food production and therefore increases food prices and therefore contributes to more hunger in the world. A very natural chain of logic. Yasa actually has done a recent study uh, illustrating this. My response as a policy-oriented systems analyst is, I see the problem, let's figure out how we can avoid and break that chain. One answer is second-generation biofuels that do not uh, displace agricultural products. Another one is that there are solutions that don't displace agricultural products, like Brazilian sugarcane. Um, I don't know if you remember Cuba, overproduction of sugarcane. Well, Cuba can maybe, with the help of the United States, perhaps start sugarcane production again for biofuels. So let's be clever about this. Let's not obsess about the problem. 
let's look for solutions. Uh, systems analysis is also integrated. Uh, the global energy assessment is a major activity at YASA, looking at the supply at the left, modeling uh, supply and demand in a complex system, looking also at food and forests and uh, climate change, acidification, and policy models and produce products like uh, on the right uh, pictures of climate changes and changes in water. That's the sort of large-scale models that we use in an integrated fashion. Uh, systems analysis at YASA also means to be interdisciplinary and international. We have members on the staff of about 40 countries. Uh, we have every year 50 young scientists come to visit us, pre-PhD students, and we have postdocs from many different countries. And we have a mix of mathematicians, social scientists, and natural scientists. It takes all disciplines if you want to solve these problems. And I think often I'm asked, how do you manage an interdisciplinary institute? I say you point the staff, the researchers, to problem solving, and then they come together. Then the social scientist, the mathematician, the engineer, and the, the geophysicists come together to solve problems. And I've seen this in many contexts. And finally, systems analysis is science-based. Um, my colleague Sebastian Cody likes this graph very much. Uh, on the green line, uh, you see the annual citations of YASA publications. We publish well, uh, certainly in the league of uh, large university departments in these sort of areas. And it has gone up tremendously over the last few years. These are primarily citations on referee publications. Uh, what the red line shows you is the uh, funding by national member organizations, inflation and currency adjusted back to 1982. So it's a backwards adjustment. And that actually has gone down in real terms. So we're doing well with less money. Now, of course, what this graph doesn't show is the external funding, which I do believe is the driving force uh, behind that most recent uh, peaking. And then finally, I already mentioned the emphasis on policy. Uh, I, was, I call it here policy analysis, but in practical terms, what we are establishing is a policy forum at YASA. And the task of this forum is to establish the linkages between the policy world and the researchers at YASA. Not in terms of public relations or communication, far be it from that but engaging the policy community early and ask what questions are pressing them, what answers they're looking for. Sometimes they ask for miracles and answers tomorrow, and we can't give that to them, but we can engage in a dialogue and uh, define what tasks are reasonable for us to tackle and when, what the sort of time frame is in which we can give answers. And it's not just policy analysis, it's decision analysis, it's negotiation analysis, and other tools that link the policy community to the more fundamental research that YASA is doing. We're also engaging our national member organizations in identifying collaborators in each country that provide the linkages to policymakers at the national member level. Uh, we do have lots of connections. This just simply shows where our uh, scientists have gone, our alumni network, and it pretty much spans the globe. And then finally, uh, we don't only do research. We have a uh, what we call capacity building activity. 
uh, every, as I mentioned, every summer 50 or to 60 students who are about two years before they finish their PhD come to YASA for three months. Uh, it's highly selective. We have about 200 and 250 applicants. We accept 50 to 60. And we match each student up with a scientist at YASA and they work as a team for three months to do a specific project. Um, aside from the fact that thereby we are spreading the word and uh, providing capacity building in our national member organizations, it also serves as a great recruitment for YASA scientists in the future because uh, after they get their PhD, they're often interested in coming back as a postdoc. And we have many of uh, scientists, both in, in high-level positions all over the world, that came out of this program, as well as people who returned to YASA. Our new members think that that's the best value that YASA offers. Our new members are China, India, Korea, Pakistan, um, Egypt, and South Africa. And if you look at that configuration, it's now truly global. YASA used to be east-west. They want capacity building. And it's very important to them, and we'll try to uh, develop further programs along those lines. Tom Schelling uh, wrote us this, by bringing the world's most promising young scientists to spend the summer at YASA, the Institute ensures the next generation of scientists is even better equipped to solve the world's problems. Kind words. And then let me end with the question. 2050, um, we can't predict the future. Looking at Copenhagen, I think in the near term, I hope some steps will be made to tackle the climate change issue. I don't think this will be it. I can't imagine. Uh, the signs are not terribly good. But very stringent actions will have to be taken to solve the climate issue. I think two degrees is a target that many countries can agree on, two degrees increase in average temperature. But that's it. And even two degrees takes an enormous amount of effort. On the other counts, food, hunger, poverty, we don't know. The future is uncertain. Unknown unknowns. Um, but perhaps in 2050 we can say that YASA and other institutions have made a small contribution in making a difference to the world. So with that I'd like to thank you very much and it was a pleasure. Vindfeld, thank you for that uh, fascinating and inspiring talk. I have a few announcements before the Q&A session, which will, we have about a half an hour for questions. Um, first, it's hoped that a podcast of this evening's event will be available online. If you're interested, um, check the LSE website early next week, and if it is available, it will be available then. Um, there will be a reception. Everyone here is invited. Uh, just before starting around 8 o'clock. It'll be in the old building. Originally, we were going to have this in the senior dining room, which is certainly a nice place, but uh, we decided for a very special speaker tonight, we'd have it in an even nicer place, which is the Shaw Library. It's in the sixth floor, not the fifth, but the sixth floor of the old building. Uh, to get there is, is very easy. Walk out the door, turn right, walk for two minutes, turn right up Houghton Street, and you go into the main building, which is on the left. Um, if you're not sure, follow, follow us, and uh, it'll be easy enough. Um, next um, announcement is um, when you, ask, when you ans ask your question, please identify yourself by both your name and your affiliation. Uh, that's something that everyone finds very helpful. 
And um, I have one final announcement. Um, LSE asked the chair to inform everyone in a very polite and British way that when you ask a question, please make sure it is indeed a question and not your own lecture. I'm sure everyone here will abide by that reasonable rule. Okay, um, questions? Just raise your hand and the, uh, someone will come and bring a microphone to you. Yes, this uh, lady here. I'll, I'll repeat the question. Thank you. Christina Julius from Berbeck College. Um, do you think that the Millennium Development Goals are achievable? Thank you. So the question is, uh, do you think the Millennium Development Goals are achievable? No. Um, certainly my first answer, because we're getting pretty close to the actual uh, checkpoint. Um, I talked actually to uh, the advisor of was the previous uh, UN Secretary General, to the advisor of the previous UN Gen Secretary General, who had worked very hard on, on setting these goals, and they were aware of the fact that it would be almost impossible to achieve. They were considered a very high bar and a motivational tool as opposed to something that could be achieved. Now, I think we have to keep on working on them, but also to think about two other things, and that is, is this the right set of goals? And also, of course, uh, is it the right level of gold? Some might be tightened up and some might be relaxed. Energy, for example, isn't on there. It's not a, it's not a millennium goal. Okay, uh, this gentleman in the middle of the second row. Langhorne, U.S. Office of Naval Research. Can you comment on the U.K.'s status regarding Yasser? Um, the U.K. status of Yasser is in uh, flux a little bit. Uh, we're making some efforts to entice uh, the UK and provide enough information that YASA would provide value for the UK as a member. Uh, it was a member until 82 or 83. I believe at the time uh, the departure that was had to do with uh, the spirit of the time. It was Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan who had no great uh, love for international organizations, I believe. Um, but times have changed, and uh, we are working with uh, John Beddington, and we're working with various science advisors in the DIFRA, DFID, DEC, and Department of Transportation to see if there's interest on that level, and then bring uh, the science advisors together at a round table and say, if we don't have enough to offer at YASA to deserve consideration of uh, the UK rejoining. It's not a huge amount of money, uh, quite frankly. I mean, it's like a large multi-year contract that uh, any department gives frequently. Okay, uh, this gentleman here at next, next My name is Cameron Rennie from uh, BP. Uh, question is, is what role do you think the private sector has uh, in contributing to uh, understanding and addressing some of the problems of pressures on, on natural resources uh, and uh, increasing uh, demand? Um, and and, 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 uh, and a follow-on specifically, how potentially could it interact, could the private sector interact with your organization? So basically, what is the role of the private sector in your view? Well, I think... Um there are a host of activities. I mean, I, I strongly believe in public-private partnerships in many of these areas. The energy sector in particular 
BP obviously has a great uh, uh, opportunity and responsibility in many ways to help with the uh, climate change issue. Um, carbon capture and storage uh, uh, issues that have to do with new technologies. Um, the, the, uh, I think the government has a role to incentivize the private sector through tax incentives, maybe caps and trades, whatever government regulatory institutional role can be. And private sector tends to be very smart responding to clear guidelines. What the private sector does not like, in my experience, is uh, uncertainty. So the mix of appropriate and smart institutional changes, policy changes, and then unleashing the ingenuity of the private sector to provide the, the responses. Okay. Uh, gentlemen. Uh... Thank you. My name is uh, D. Emili, from, uh, originally from Ethiopia. I'm an affiliate of London Metropolitan University. Um, can you tell us um, what are the proportion of Africa's emission um, in comparison to the global uh, carbon emission? And I've been attending uh, quite a lot of uh, climate-related uh, uh, lectures, and Africa's always portrayed uh, still in the dark, and in the future there is no light and there is no hope. And uh, I wonder, um, as an Ethiopian, um, the Nile will vanish or evaporate, or why, for example, there will be a water shortage because 97% um, of the Nile River uh, originated from Ethiopia. So I don't have a dim view, but I figured to enlighten me on this. Is it due to population growth or mismanagement or, or the system, the political system that is badly managing the resources in the, the whole continent? Thank you. Uh, generally, the question was about Africa's role and your view, yes? Well, I can't give you any numbers on, uh, on the contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. I suspect that the traditional greenhouse gas emissions are relatively small, <coughs> if not very small. There's, of course, the issue of biomass and uh, the burning of uh, wood and firework, fire, fire tools and so on. I am not an expert in this, but YASA actually has started a, a new project that looks at uh, substituting uh, biomass burning of wood and, and, and uh, other materials uh, with electricity or, or gas stoves. And so that is also, uh, Terry, the Indian uh, organization, is very much involved in that. This is also a means of um, starting economic development uh, by providing sources of uh, electricity and energy. Uh, your other question was about water and um, Again, I have to, I can't give, give, get into that much detail there. There's certainly regional areas that have plenty of water. But if you look at the, at the overall water map, uh, there are large, large areas that have a water shortage in the foreseeable future. Okay, Th this uh, gentleman in the fourth person in that row <coughs> first, and then the gentleman behind him. Um, uh, Johannes Jaspers, an MSc student here at LSE. Um, the uh, the Süddeutsche Zeitung in Germany uh, recently published an article called um, Financial Crisis 1, Climate Change 0. In what sense do you think did the financial crisis take the public 
um, focus of the issues that you raised in your lecture? So basically, it's from something that was raised in the, in the German article, uh, do you think that the financial crisis has taken people's focus on climate issues? I, I think this is probably true temporarily, and we're kind of just as the crisis seems to be, uh, we get, seem to be getting out of the crisis, I think we're, we're focusing attention. And Copenhagen, of course, is now a big uh, object of debate and discussion and will be so throughout the time. Um, uh, fortunately, I have to say the crisis, it, it could have gotten much worse, and I think people at that point would probably be more concerned about employment and their pocketbook. Um, you don't remember the times, but you're from Germany? Well, I grew up in the 50s, and in the 50s in Germany, which was right, right after, post, after the war, we didn't care about pollution. We cared about growth. We cared about wealth. We cared about buying a bigger car. And uh, so I think in the balance of things, down, whether you like it or not, I think people who are in dire straits or unemployed focus on economy and not on environment and not on, on uh, climate. The gentleman over here. Just. Uh, thank you for your insightful presentation. Uh, I'm Sharad from LSE. Uh, my question is uh, regarding the simulation that uh, you did for next 100 years um, and particularly for energy, what are the alternate sources of fuel that you have considered beyond say next 20 years or 30 years? Thank you. Thank you. So the question was um, looking at the simulation you have for the next 100 years, what do you see as uh, alternative sources of energy say in the next 20 or 30 years? Well, I mean, I actually can show you a graph later on. I can't just go through the material right now to dig it up. But for each of the scenarios that you saw for the IPCCs, there is a corresponding scenario of energy supply that can meet those demands. Um, the, the bottom line, though, is if you want to stay in that low emission scenario area, you, you need a lot of renewable energy, number one. So you need wind, you need solar, you need hydro. Uh, you need to make smart use of uh, bioenergy, biofuels and biomass. And you also, I know that in some countries this is a dirty word, you also need nuclear power. Now I have a personal opinion about nuclear power because I've worked on nuclear power for many years. Um, a lot of it has to do with national perception about nuclear power. The risks are there, the waste is there. Some countries seem to accept it, like France. Some countries don't accept it at all, like Austria. And I think it has, it's ultimately a choice of the country, but in the global mix, it ought to play at, at some level. If we want to avoid uh, climate change, if we want to stay within two degrees of average warming, I think we have to do something drastic about coal and oil to reduce the share of coal and oil, of the overall energy consumption. Uh, that's going to be tough. Some things are still experimental, like carbon capture and sequestration, just to capture the emissions. That, that would make a big step forward. Um, but uh, we have to reduce the reliance. And another way, of course, which I didn't mention, is reduce, reducing demand uh, and in increasing energy efficiency. So all of these things have to come in the mix. Uh, but I can show you some graphs about uh, what, in particular, some of these mixes might look like. Oh, I should just say one more thing. 
The one surprising thing to me was, just like with the population aspect, I don't know, when I grew up, we all talked about the population explosion. Well, that apparently is not here anymore. Also, when I grew up, we talked about not having any resources anymore. We're running out of oil. We're running out of coal. That's not true either. We have the resources. It's just we need to use them in a way that avoids environmental and climate damage. Okay. A gentleman in the first row here. Yes. Uh, Crispin Tickell. We all very much favor... What you're with... We all very much favor the work of Yasser and wish it well. What concerns me slightly is it doesn't seem to connect enough with the work of scientific advisors in member countries and doesn't seem to connect sufficiently with the world press, the scientific press. Now, those of us who read our scientific journals every week don't see the word Yasser very often. And that seems to me a mistake. And I was wondering what you were doing at the moment in your reform plan to improve the, let's say, the, the, the particular character of YASA contributions. Now, there are a lot of things that have been going on in this country recently, which I've been at. For example, looking at worst-case scenarios for climate change. There's been a lot of interest in black carbon and the importance of black carbon in reducing both global warming and improving human health. And I just wondered whether, just to take those two examples, whether you do those kind of things and whether you can percolate through sufficiently to National Academies of Science and the scientific literature which we look at every week. So, but, okay. I was just going to say, just to summarize, so basically I understand the question to be um, how is YASA connecting more with scientists and press, scientific press in its member countries? Well, let me, ask the, let me answer the media question first. Um, uh, we, we are aware of both. I, I am keenly aware of both problems, just to, to say that up front. On the media side, we actually have made significant strides. I don't know if it's enough, but we've pretty much doubled the media hits in the last uh, six months, eight months or so, uh, which, is, which is partly due to the fact that we have hired a particular person who just does media scanning and relationships and information and uh, sets up interviews between uh, our scientists, our researchers, and the media. Um, if you work with, with researchers, I'm staying with media for just one more second, it's sometimes, some people can do that and some people can't. Uh, so we also will use some media training uh, and also just get them out of that shyness of, they're all very worried about being misquoted or, well, you know, that happens that will happen for sure, so you just live with it, and you try to get your message across. Uh, on, the, on the policy side and linking to policy, science policy, and even more general, uh, policy makers in, in uh, uh, departments, uh, managers, uh, uh, we are making a, a real effort to reach out to the policy community in a direct dialogue. And this will take time, because a lot of that is actually relationship building. You can't just call somebody up and say, I'm interested in your issues, in your problems. You have to get to know them, and you have to develop a working relationship with them. We're making some real progress there. I mean, with the UK, we're starting to, uh, we started at the dialogue uh, with the science advisors and 
uh, we went around to the four departments that I mentioned earlier. We're now linking our researchers directly to the second tier of science advisors and policymakers in the agencies. Uh, this is an experiment. I mean, we're not doing this only in the UK. We're also doing it in uh, Korea and Finland and selected other countries in India, China. Uh, it's a growing process that I think uh, we'll, we'll learn as we go. The policy forum is the vehicle that we intend to use for that. That policy forum will not consist of YASA researchers, certainly not of those who don't know a policymaker when they see one right in front of them, but it will consist of people who have skills in that area, who have proven that they can interact at that level of high level of policy making and decision making. So yes, the two points that you mentioned are uh, difficult and we're trying to tackle them and we hope to make some progress in the, certainly during my tenure in the next uh, few years. Okay. Uh, this gentleman in the second row, please identify yourself and your affiliation, please. I'm Rolf Tomlinson, lately of Warwick University and even more lately of Yassa. Um, my question is really relating to how the picture has changed in the 30 years since I was there of recruitment and how far you're able to get into planning ahead. Because when I was there, trying to recruit people was A, trying to find somebody who could spare a year or possibly two years, very rarely three years, away from their post, whatever it was. Um, and there was very little the places where people were doing this work, used to interdisciplinary things, apart from just one or two countries. And even there it was very hard to find the people and difficult to get them away. Now, you've had 30 years of student programs um, and a lot of experience. How far has this been made it possible for you to plan your recruitment and genuinely look five years ahead in terms of a program? Because I remember this was one of my continual difficulties with Roger Levine, who wanted to have a five-year plan when I said, you know, there's no chance of, I have no idea who's going to be there in three years' time, let alone plan. Well, you, you raised the point also that we were, I was certainly aware of it, also the council, the Yasa council, and staff was aware. First of all, let me give you the facts, the way it looks right now. We have a highly bimodal distribution of Yasa scientists. There are quite a few who've been there since Franz Josef, as, as we say, uh, or, so, or it seems. Uh, 30 years, let's say, since your time, since my time, when, when, when we were working together, remember that? Um, and then we have many uh, junior scientists and mid-career scientists who come for a year or two or three, then have a tough choice to make whether this is a career path or maybe looking elsewhere to find something more steady. Because YASA was never designed to be a, a long-term career path. Um, so we're facing that now. The people who have had this career path basically did it a year by another year, by three years, by four years, and it was allowed. It wasn't forbidden, so it was possible. But it's unhealthy, I think. So we are de de 
we're devising a new policy for YASA recruitment, which will be somewhat like a university policy. Uh, each contract at the beginning will be for three years. Uh, the following, uh, there's a one-time potential for an extension for two years. In your fifth year, you have to go through a serious review. That's kind of like tenure. And at that point, you have to meet a very high threshold to kick into that long-term career. And that threshold requires not only that you're an, uh, a superb scholar and you publish and you so show creativity and innovation, but also that you show the kind of leadership skills that would lead a team at YASA for another five or potentially ten years. Our planning cycle is ten years now. You know, so we have a ten-year time horizon for the strategies that I laid out. Uh, then we have two times five years research planning of projects, if you will. But it's kind of out of sync, as you mentioned, with the current structure of the recruitment cycle. So we want to bring that back into sync. Three plus two plus tenure, or whatever you would like to call it. Uh, this gentleman over here. My name is Gautama Appa. I'm from LSE. I like two phrases that you used, problem-led and solution-oriented research. Problem-led is wonderful. Solution-oriented. Mm. What kind of solutions are you prepared to consider? For example, do we assume that the world is going to remain as it is in terms of its power structure and the way it works? and then try to find solutions within that which are technically feasible. Let me give you a couple of examples. Health. Maybe abolition of patent rights is the way to make cheap health available through the world. Take resources. Resource-rich country, resource countries which are suffering from great poverty. Can we consider that perhaps exploitation of these by America these kinds of things are even possible problems, and perhaps solutions of that kind of thing can be considered. How radical are you, supposed, are you prepared to be? And what does one assume when it is also in the, not in the interest of your clients, as it were? Or sometimes clients can be at loggerheads about some solutions that you may suggest. Sorry, I'm not supposed to give a lecture. No. <laughs> That's the question. So basically, uh, the questionnaire said he likes the phrases problem-led, uh, Solution-oriented, um, would like you to elaborate about that and had some specific examples. Well, let, let me speak to you as a decision analyst and how I like to frame problems and solutions. I, I think it's a futile idea to look at a problem and to try to narrow down immediately to one sort of narrow optimal solution. So the initial search I always encourage and I encourage my researcher is to think creatively to think innovatively, to think long-term, and to think broadly. And to be bold in terms of sketching out solutions, because it doesn't have to be something that you have to be sure of that you can do. It has to just have enough reality that it lends itself to an assessment that can shake out the pros and cons of alternative solutions. That's the spirit. Uh, so it's not optimization, it's solution-oriented. You know. But it's looking at options uh, in a very, very broad and creative sense. So I sometimes get a little um, uh, concerned if somebody says, oh, I can optimize this. Well, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking at broad solutions. 
I'm also getting concerned at those who say, oh my God, this problem is unsolvable. Oh, be quiet. I mean, biofuels is a case like that. I mean, there are literally two camps. One says it's bad, the other says it's good. I say, we got to find a solution that makes smart biofuels, the middle ground, you know. So it's that sort of thing, I think, that, that we're looking for. Okay, next question. Gentleman in the second row, and after that, the lady two rows back. My name is Barry Feinberg. I'm a member of the Royal Institute of British Architects, and my interest in my later life has been about urban planning, urban development, urban design. And I'm concerned, uh, though I have been aware of and have valued the idea of systems analysis as an approach. And the fact is, there are few legible systems within the operation of our urban uh, affairs and uh, a great deal of irrationality, randomness, chance and, and frank disorder. So that's the first difficulty, is how to bring a perception of change which makes that complexity more ordered so that it's more manageable both to analyze and then to synthesize possible options. Having said that, you showed a number of graphs showing worst case scenarios and best case scenarios. And in each case, you have in effect said or in inferred that the worst case scenarios were the outcome of business as usual. And business as usual, um, and most people would probably agree, is driven by the growth of cities. And this has been the greatest source okay. of pollution. I think we have an, uh, we, so I'm coming. Idea I'm now. coming. Um, if you, you need to keep the question short, if I may say, if you can just complete it, yes. Amongst the mindsets which limits the possible uh, remedy, the solution approach, are the acceptance of business as usual in the growth of cities. Has there been any consideration that we've reached the point in which the, the state of our cities is wholly unmanageable and that a reverse migration must be the future policy back into the rural hinterlands with development and attention directed in, in the opposite direction? Let me just make very concisely what I, what I see as your very, very interesting question. Uh, very concise, concisely, you were interested in uh, how do you bring perception to, of change, and you were talking about best case and worst case scenarios, and maybe uh, Professor Bunn. Well, I actually thought that the last part was the most interesting part. Can I well, respond to the last yes, part first? Um, well, of course, everything points to increased urbanization uh, in the developing countries, and to some extent, even still in the developed countries, uh, bringing with it enormous problems. I was part, part of an infrastructure analysis center for many years and the sort of things that uh, we're neglecting in infrastructure are just absolutely tremendous. So yeah, I think that is an ad hoc system that sort of feeds on itself, it creates more problems. Uh, it has to get really bad though before we see reverse migration. I don't see it, it's, it's, I don't think it's, uh, I'm, I'm not seeing it yet. I've lived in Los Angeles with, uh, in the, and lived in the traffic for many, many years, and I, so people are still moving out into the, into the neighborhoods. 
Um, are you uh, watching the time? Yeah, so um, this lady here and this gentleman there, and I think that's going to be it because uh, we're running out of time. Yeah. My name is Priyanka, and I'm a student at LSE. My question is, do you think uh, civil societies have a role in solving the global problems of food, security, energy, climate, poverty, and equity? And if so, what strategy or approach do you recommend that would be constructive? Thank you. I can answer that directly. I, I have to um, respond by that is not my strength in topic of, uh, that I could respond to. So the aspects of civil society and governance are clearly very important, but the way we, we use them and deal with them in our modeling activity is by the mechanisms that translates these systems into levers in the models, for example, regulation, taxation, etc. So it, the, the overarching notion of civil society is beyond both my expertise and probably the expertise of most of the people at YASA. Okay, and one final short question, I'm sure it will be. We've just had a very um, difficult situation in the UK where the chairman of the advisory committee on the misuse of drugs has been fired by the Home Secretary for passing um, a line into policy when in fact he should stick to science. And as a result, five scientists have now resigned from the committee. I'd be interested to know how this tension between science and policymakers are being dealt with in EASA. Well, fortunately, EASA doesn't do work on drugs, and it doesn't work on, <laughs> on uh, uh, what was it, drugs and alcohol. We don't work on alcohol. We drink a few, but we don't uh, actually <laughs> study. Um, again, I, let, me, let me speak as a decision analyst, which is sort of a piece of the architecture of, this, of systems analysis. As a decision analyst, I shy away and I recommend not to be prescriptive to tell a policymaker, thou shalt do A or thou shalt do B, but to present the options uh, with, in regards to the objectives that need to be achieved in a balanced manner, using putting the facts on the table and showing the pros and cons, and to not to get engaged as a, as a participant in the as a player, as an activist in the dialogue, but as a voice of reason uh, and of uh, showing the pros and cons of various actions. I know that's easier said than done, and I've sometimes stepped out of that role myself and became a bit of an activist. And you know, you look at the IPCC diagrams and you say IPCC was supposed to be science, right? Well, yeah, but if you want to stay down here, you got to do A, B, C, D, and E, so you become an activist. But this particular case that you're referring to um, is something that uh, we're very careful about. Uh, we're, we have this advantage of being truly independent, and nobody can really fire us. Not in that sense. Yeah, maybe this is a good time to thank the speaker and uh, invite you again to the reception in the Shaw Library.